the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, if you think about it, I think we can all agree that we live in a fallen, sin-tarnished world, replete with all the effects that that has had on man's fallen condition. One, by the way, of our own doing. Uh, that, of course, uh, that impact on our relationships, first between mankind and his creator, second between mankind and his neighbor. Now, if the power of the gospel to forgive and restore on the vertical plane has the effect that it has in restoring in reconciling our relationship with God, that reconciliation between creator and creation. Should not that same restorative power take place in relationships extending across the horizontal plane? Let's talk about that. Lisa Sharon Harper joins us. She's Chief Church Engagement Officer with Sojourners, the author of a new book called The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Lisa, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much, Craig. It's great to be here. This is a point that perhaps all of us need to be uh, pondering. Uh, We sometimes want to limit God in our thinking, in seeing the gospel as the ability to be forgiven and reconciled and walk and restore relationship between creation and creator. And while all of that is true and all of that is predominant and, and critical and first and foremost, the story really of reconciliation behind the power of the gospel doesn't end there, does it? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, I think for myself, I I was I became a Christian and walked down the aisle. I like to say I jumped the broom with Jesus in 1983, August 21st of 1983. Actually, my birthday with Jesus is coming up pretty soon. Quite a, it sure <laughs> is, isn't it? I almost forgot that. Um, but you know, I I came to faith, and I was told pretty quickly, you know, that this is this is really about my relationship with God, and that's it. And I took a journey just about 13 years ago um, called the Pilgrimage for Reconciliation. And on that pilgrimage, we went across 10 states in the, in the south, the northern south and the deep south, asking the question the whole way as we retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the African experience in, in the, um, on this land from slavery through civil rights. We were asking, what does the gospel have to say to this? And I had to really face a hard truth when I got to the end. I realized that... If I were to share my understanding of the gospel with my ancestors, it wouldn't make them jump for joy. I don't think they would have received it as good news. My ancestors who walked the Trail of Tears, who, according to family oral tradition, and who slaved in South Carolina, if I went up to them and I said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but you are sinful and therefore separated from God. All you need to do is pray this prayer because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and then you'll get to go to heaven. Would that make them jump up and down? I had to really admit the reality of no, it would not. And so that's what propelled me on a 13-year journey, really, in Genesis, the book of Genesis, and then all the way through the scripture to find what is 
how does Jesus actually communicate the gospel? Because I think at, at the end of the day, that, that sense of realization, that quickening of man's separation from God and sin and the need for um, uh, spilled blood for, for forgiveness and reconciliation is something that we, while we can explain it, it really can only be quickened to one's heart through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And yet oftentimes I think we as the church sort of leave it there. It's sort of the one and done. And once you've, you, you've accomplished that, uh, meaning that you've, you've made that surrender, you've asked for forgiveness, you've given your life over to God, God is therefore through the power of the work of Christ's sacrifice on the cross forgiven us, and, and that reconciliation process begins, and, and that's wonderful and beautiful and, and all part of God's design to be sure, but God wants so much more for us, doesn't he? And that the notion of his creation living in harmony together was certainly a part of the original plan until mankind managed to mess things up there in the Garden of Eden, but, but right. God wanted for us to walk in harmony. Disunity and the turmoil that we're living in today, while certainly as a end product of man's fallen condition, is not God's ideal for us. Well, that, that's exactly right. And actually, I have to say, this was really critical in my research. Was What I found was that at the end of Genesis 1, when God looks around at creation and says, this is very good, that that word good, tov, is really kind of a clincher because... Um, when when you open up that word you begin to open up the text that word tov is not necessarily referring to the things themselves it's not necessarily saying God is saying ooh that's a good son I just made or ooh that's a really great platypus or that's a great human being no instead what it's saying goodness according to the Hebrews existed between things but our understanding of perfection which is really a Greek concept exists in the thing. So when we think of what the perfection as God would, um, would, would have it, perfection as we've been taught through the Greeks actually is about us becoming perfect or God's creation being perfect and, they're, you know, and then defiled. But actually, the way the Hebrews thought of it was actually that the relationships were perfect. There was an overflowing, forceful, vehement goodness in the relationship between humanity and God, and also in the relationship between men and women, and humanity and the rest of creation, and all of God's creation, and the systems that govern us, that the way things worked, there was only blessing, not cursing in the beginning. So when we look at what would God have for us now, what does it look like to be redeemed, it's not only about our relationship with God, though that is absolutely there, But the reality is is that when our relationship with God is well, then we live in a web of relationships that then become well as well. So God um, looks at perfection or very goodness and says, if it's going to be very good, it has to be very good for all, not just some. So do we shortchange God? Do we sell him short in the sense that we tend to... And while this might seem to be sort of unique to the um, uh, evangelical uh, Protestant believer, I think there's plenty of this uh, um, responsibility to go around, uh, no matter what your particular uh, persuasion might be within uh, the, 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 the large arch of Christendom. But do we sell God short by simply and singularly focusing on the power of Jesus Christ, in his work on the cross to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation 
only on the vertical plane and somehow act as if uh, that same power, the ability to forgive and, and experience reconciliation um, and renewed right relationship is somehow not possible or we shouldn't bother with our, with uh, doing or looking at that on the, on the horizontal plane? Well, you know, that's a great question. I would actually say that the way that we sell ourselves short is by lifting Jesus outside of his context and outside of the context of the whole rest of the scripture. Because Jesus comes to us, was born into a long story, a story written by many authors that spans millennia and goes beyond him as well as, you know, through the cross and the resurrection and the first church and the teachings of Paul. And so when we take Jesus outside of his own context, meaning he was born in the context of a colonized, imperialized nation, the Jews, in the context of the Roman Empire. Just a few years before his birth, the Roman Empire had um, squashed a possible insurrection in Galilee, where there were 2,000 people crucified at one in one day. Crucified! 500 crucified after that every single day by another general who came through. The soldiers got so bored in their crucifixions that they began to place the bodies in different positions to humor themselves. That was the context that Jesus was born into. And so when, when Mary um, sings in Magnificat, when Mary sings that the, the low will be brought high and the high will be brought down low, and when Jesus says in Luke 4, I have come and I am, I've been anointed to preach good news, not to the middle class, not to those who have, but actually to the poor, to the oppressed. There were actually poor people in that room. There were actually oppressed. The whole context was a, a context of oppressed people. So I think that that's one of the things that we do ourselves a disservice. We don't realize the ethical, the here and now implications of the gospel, of the scripture, when we lift Jesus outside of his context. Let's pause on that point. We'll come back to more of our conversation after a brief update on traffic. If you've tuned in and been late, shame on you. No, if you've tuned in a bit late, visiting today with Lisa Sharon Harper, author of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. I think today's some conversation to help better understand how God would have us Look at these questions, look at these problems, and what kind of an answer that the gospel can bring to them in terms of realizing not just uh, God's passion for reconciliation unto us, but then to see that same reconciliation play out on the horizontal between his creation as well. We'll take a time out, come back to more of our conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation here at this edition of Lifeline, our visit with Lisa Sharon Harper. Her new book, by the way, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, newly published by Waterbrook and Multnomah Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. Is part of the issue here, Sharon, the fact that perhaps in our quest to understand reconciliation between creation creator and seeing the the need or or comprehending the transformative power of salvation that it hasn't gone far enough and by that i mean um salvation is the beginning point then there is this matter of sanctification so we recognize sin the impact of sin we then 
through the power of Christ's blood become saved, that salvation then takes us to that long-term process in preparation of moving from um, the kingdom here on earth to the, the, the kingdom up in heaven with the big capital K. And that, of course, is called this matter of sanctification. I would imagine that if, if mankind were really truly embracing sanctification and not just the concept of fire insurance, that the changing of our heart in relationship to God would also change our heart in relationship to each other. And therefore, the turmoil that we're seeing even right now as we speak, would, would perhaps look very differently, wouldn't it? I'll tell you what. I'm going to tell you a story. I was, I was writing Genesis, the uh, chapter 2 of the book, on a glimpse of Shalom. And I was writing and, and researching, actually, Genesis 1. And some, I had this huge aha moment that led me really to a time of worship as I was writing and actually weeping. I was weeping and worshiping because I realized that uh, many scholars now believe that they understand that Genesis as a book was actually written by several different sets of authors. That um, one of those sets of authors was a, was a company of priests. These priests were leaving. They were exiting the Babylonian exile. As such, that you know, as I've heard that. I've heard that term before. About you know, they were exiled. Okay, they didn't get to live where they wanted to live. But it's much more than that. They went through war. Sons died. Mothers died, husbands, brothers died. Then they were taken away from their land, made to live in Babylon, in a place that was not their own. In that land, they were taught the worldview of the Babylonians. The Babylonians told them that they were created to be slaves. That was the Babylonian worldview. All humanity was created to be enslaved by the gods, slaves to the gods. They were also told that they were not made in the image of God. Only the royalty was made in the image of God. So when I was studying Genesis 1, and I get to the, uh, to the beginning of day 6, and they say that these priests write, and God said, let all humankind be made in our image, in our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth. I, I, it hit me. I was like, this is revolutionary for them because they have just spent 70 years in oppression. And then it hit me. Wait a minute. I've never heard that the writers of Genesis 1, not 2, but Genesis 1, they were coming out of an oppressed context. They were... They were, they were writing in the context of thinking through and trying to figure out how do they see their own creation story in light of what they've been told about who they are by their oppressors. And I think that that's actually really, truly one of the biggest issues, Craig, is that when we study the scripture, when we look at and try to put together theologies that work for us, we are not doing it from the same social location, from the same uh, uh, experience as those who wrote the scripture in the first place. So what we tend to do is we tend to divorce it from its context, and then you know we jump to application and jump to interpretation before we even understand what the original writers might have been thinking in the first. Sure, and that's that's the simplest definition of proof texting. Exactly. Uh, come up with a conclusion, and then we'll find a piece of scripture that's going to support your conclusion. Exactly, <laughs> and and check this out, Craig. I mean, imagine the power of of these people having been enslaved for seventy years, turning around and saying, "God said, let all humanity have dominion." 
And that word dominion, it's been really misunderstood. It actually means stewardship. It means, in fact, in Genesis 2, you have picture of dominion that is the till and keep when the humans are placed in the garden and said till and keep this. That those words till and keep mean serve and protect. So dominion, to exercise dominion is to serve and protect. And all humanity has been given that, 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 that call and that capacity by God. But the problem for us is that we live in a world where we have laws and systems and structures that have told us a lie. So the issue here then is not just a matter of a distorted view of how we see ourselves, right. uh, or, or others rather, but also how we see ourselves. Right, that's exactly right. We 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 have we have not understood that God cares about how we exercise power here on earth and how we interact with each other in relationship to power. Because I think that one of the, the key, the, the, the big question that they were trying to ask in Genesis 1 was after having been oppressed for 70 years, how now shall we rule as we enter into the new rule in the temple? And so the question of the image of God is key then, because there's some implications there. All humanity is made in the image of God, so everybody is a representative figure of God. Everybody is called with the capacity to exercise dominion. And if we govern in a way that squashes the capacity of any individual or people group to exercise dominion, then we are also squashing the image of God on earth. Well, not only that, but we're also um, denigrating uh, the way they see God because their perception is that God thinks less of them. That all of a sudden we've set up second and third class citizens and now all of a sudden there's an elite that's uh, going to get the bigger mansions in heaven and uh, then there's a second and third class citizens that uh, are not so. And all of a sudden then I think that that diminished viewpoint of of ourself is a natural flow out of a... A, a taken out of context understanding of how God sees us. Yes, and you know, think of it this way also. When you look at the beginning of Luke, Luke 1, Luke actually sets it up. Luke says, you know, in the days of Herod, in the days of King Herod. Well, that's significant. He's setting up the context. The context is the context of empire. It's the context of an oppressed people. It's the context of, of a very corrupt king. Um, uh, or proxy king for Caesar, and it's the it's the uh, context of of the Roman Empire, which had just um, done two thousand uh, uh, crucifixions and five hundred every day after that, just a few years before this the right the the period when this text place takes place. So that's the context that Luke is setting up in the beginning. It's actually, and then Jesus is born. And in and, and Mark, we see Jesus say, repent and believe the, ki- the, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom, believe the gospel, believe the good news. I believe that when Jesus came, what he was doing was he was confronting the kingdoms of men that crushed the image of God. And Jesus' work was to create um, flourishing in the image of God, in the people starting with the Jews and working his way out. And that flourishing requires that we have relationship with God. But it also, it, it requires relationship with each other that, that blesses and does not curse the image of God in each other. And we certainly know that it's possible. I mean, if you look at the ragtag group of the 12 that he had around him, I mean, there's plenty of, of cause uh, for, for none of the individuals to really get along, particularly when you consider the fact that you've got 
multiple layers of multiple classes of individuals. You've got tax collectors and you have physicians and you have thinkers and you have fishermen. So you've got everything from the blue collar worker to the white collar worker to those that are high up in government to those that uh, eschew anything involving government thinking it's just a dirty place to be to be. And yet you manage to find all of these men coming together in absolute harmony around the central figure of Jesus Christ himself. So we know that the sense of reconciliation on the horizontal plane is modeled successfully so. Uh, sure, I'm sure they had their moments. I mean, we, we certainly even see evidence of that in Scripture. But overall, the the capacity to see reconciliation uh, and, and, and balanced relationship take place along the horizontal is modeled in the apostles and so why not then superimpose um, that paradigm on where we're at to get today. We'll talk about that when we come back after a brief time out. We're visiting today with Lisa Sharon Harper. The book is called A Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. And we're going to dig down a bit deeper into the application of the power of the gospel and its influence on things such as the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, uh, all of significant um, changes that took place in American society 40 years ago now, and what seems to be a troubling absent absence of that impact today, and whether or not this is in part... Uh, uh, can, can better explain the challenges that we're facing and what the road out may be. We'll get to that part of the conversation as Lifeline continues after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation. Lisa Sharon Harper with us. The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Uh, Sharon, you've got a lot of expertise in this arena. Uh, listeners may not know that one time you served as a ministry director of a racial reconciliation uh, aspect of a ministry in greater Los Angeles, and, and you've touched on a little bit of that um, in our conversation today. But I have to wonder... There seems to be a big distinction between what we're seeing happening in our country today, uh, the movement afoot to try and, and get it addressed at, at multiple layers, and the movement that we saw leading the charge, so to speak, back in the 50s and 60s, and that was the church was absolutely forefront. Everybody thinks of or maybe has learned in school about Dr. Martin Luther King, they forget that he is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, and that it was the church that was largely the spearhead of that movement that eventually brought about things like the end of Jim Crow laws down in the southern states and the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. I'm just wondering if in this current battle enjoined as we talk about uh, police departments, what's happening uh, with the minority communities and whatnot in relationship to uh, community policing, if, if maybe the one thing that seems to be absent from the forefront of this, and that is the church. Well, let me just say the church is not absent. The church, there are many people actually who are deeply, deeply committed leaders in the church who are very much uh, pastoring and chaplaining the movement right now. But let's take a step back, and I just want to um, share how all of this is all connected. Um, and it's funny because I kind of have to go back to, to the Roman times, to, to Plato. Plato was the first person in Western civilization that I could find that actually said the word race and said it 
um, in terms of defining how race would operate within the context of a society. When he wrote The Republic in 360 B.C., and in The Republic 360 B.C., what he said was, different humans are made of different races. And those races are determined by the metals that the human is made out of. There are gold people, silver people, copper and iron people. Each of those different sets of people actually serve the, the republic in a different way. So then flash forward to about 1453 A.D., and you get the Pope at that point um, putting forward the Doctrine of Discovery. So. Race, we know, um, according to Plato, was supposed to define how society worked, how you structure society at its most basic core. Then the Pope actually decides that if, so an explorer comes to him and says, yo, 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 Pope, you know, I'm going to go exploring and I need your blessing. And the Pope says, I got it, you got my blessing, but even, I'll one-up you, if you come across some land that doesn't have a lot of concrete and doesn't have a lot of stone, go ahead and claim it for the kingdom. Go ahead and claim it for the throne, because that means they're not civilized and that means they don't have a right to actually exercise dominion on that land. So where we get that, so what that does is it starts to create a bifurcation in those who are fully made in the image of God and those who are not. And that's the beginning of, of the religious um, uh, uh, nod to the construct of race. Then throughout American history, you, will, you have Linnaeus, the botanist, who puts together a, a literal taxonomy of human value with white Europeans on the, on the top and then uh, Asians, and then um, red, he called them red um, Americanus, the Native Americans, and then black um, Africanus on the bottom. And that is the, that's when we start to see different races um, in different ways. And then we start to codify those races into different stations of American society around the 1660s, 1680s, all the way up to the three-fifths compromise that said, legally speaking, black people are only three-fifths of a human being. Then, in 1790, we declared with the Immigration Act of 1790 that only white people would be able to exercise dominion in America, and that's when we said they would be the only ones who could become naturalized citizens. So from that point forward, we have had a struggle in America on this land of people who are oppressed struggling to have the full image of God, the full call, the full capacity that God created with them with to exercise dominion, realized and protected by law. That was the struggle of the civil rights movement. And of course, the irony is you read the Declaration of Independence and that preamble. Right. Right. codifies that we hold these truths to be self-evident. And it's interesting that it doesn't say we we have determined, we have established, we have decided. No, it says we hold. That gives right. credence to the notion that these truths are not truths that we created ourselves, but rather we're acknowledging have been established by some other entity, and certainly from a biblical perspective, I think we would say that that comes from God. And yet, even from then, we have managed to, you know, make make the bold pronouncement and statement and then run in the opposite direction ever since. Yes, that's exactly right. And so what you get is you get the Civil War where people literally had to die and bleed so that some could actually have in the image of God and then realized and cultivated and protected. And then you get Jim Crow that pushed that back. And then you get the civil rights movement that, that again fought to have the image of God protected, realized, and cultivated in, in the same people. 
and others who were then being oppressed. Now, the, the difference between the civil rights movement and the Black Lives Matter movement or the current movement for the black for a, a black struggle is that the civil rights movement was fighting specifically a very specific thing called segregation in the South. And that very specific thing, it hit the entire cross-section of the black community. I mean, it hit grandma, it hit baby, it hit, it hit Uncle Joe, everybody. And what's the best institution then to address something that hits across the entire cross-section of society? It is the church. But the thing is today, the people who were experiencing the brunt, the, the, the sharpest point of the, of the spear in terms of um, today's um, uh, injustice with regard to mass incarceration and police brutality, the people who are experiencing it the most are the young people. They're the folks in the streets, and they're not churched. And so, of course, the movement would rise up from that space. And, of course, they would lead it because they understand the injustice the most because they're the ones experiencing it. So it's really the job, it's the role of the church to then come alongside, to add the moral heft of our moral authority and to stand with them and to say, yes, we are only calling on the image of God to be fully honored in every single human being, including Michael Brown, including Tamir Rice, including Eric Garner, including uh, Philando Castile, including Alton Sterling, and the list goes on. You know, the sad thing is that when you look at the impact uh, of illicit drug use in America. And, and all the crime and everything that attends to that, and the destruction of marriages and lives and relationships. And yet, as you point out, the impact, it's kind of a twofold one. It's sort of a, a, a double whammy in that if you are doing cocaine in its powdered form, you're likely right. somebody who has a bank, an, a bank account or a contact list strong enough that you're going to be able to get out of it. You're going to have slap on the wrist. The judge is going to say, okay, 90 days probation and uh, write a big check to some foundation and, and and uh, we'll, we'll consider it one and done. And yet, if you are in a minority class that doesn't use the powder form, but uses the crack cocaine form, oh, all of a sudden now, you got to do 90 years in jail. That's exactly right. And I mean, and more than that, we've actually, now it's actually been proven that when Nixon declared the war on drugs back in 19, in the early 1970s, I believe it was 1972, he said, we're going to do a war on drugs. Well, now we actually have him on tape saying that this was actually, that, that was a dog whistle, that was buzzword, that was a way post-Civil Rights Act to control and confine black, black communities. Because if they really were going to have a war on drugs, then they would have actually gone down into the South and they would have they would have focused on, on on southern women because southern women actually had the highest rates of drug abuse all the way from antebellum the antebellum south up to up to present because of the way that they had to suffer through the powerlessness that they experienced watching their husbands and and their brothers go and um, and well let's just say it and and rape their quote-unquote property, black women and men, quite honestly, um, through on, on slave plantations. And so those women anesthetized themselves by, by drugging themselves. But of course that's not where we focused. Instead, they focused policing 
on black communities. And whenever you focus policing anywhere, that's where that's going to be the bulk of who you get. Well, even we see the the impact of things like uh, Johnson's Great Society that created a welfare state that's that's managed to have the same negative impact. That while on the surface, oh, it sounds great, we got a we got a war on poverty and we got a war on drugs, and they don't realize in every war there are casualties and there's also friendly fire that ends up taking out the wrong people. The very people that you're supposed to be protecting and supposed to be on the friendly side end up becoming victims as well. A fascinating read, and I sure appreciate the time, Lisa, from you to uh, share with us some of your thoughts and insights. And again, more found inside the pages of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, newly released by Multnomah Press. And again, you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. Our thanks to Lisa Sharon Harper for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You can be uh, sure that at some point when Congress gets away from their other financial distractions, they will return once again to the topic of gun control. They did as they did so following the Sandy Took events. Joining me now with some insights, we're joined by Bill Frady. Bill is host of the nationally syndicated program called Lock and Load, presented by Gun Owners of America. Bill, thanks for taking some time to be with us tonight. Um, I, I guess only the distraction of other things going on in Washington, D.C. Um, has temporarily de- the delayed the parade of, uh, once again, renewed demands to uh, truncate the Second Amendment rights. Yeah, yeah. right now they've got bigger fish to fry. Uh, it, it's really, you know, in the United States, uh, since Sandy Hook, uh, there's been five studies and surveys taken. Uh Two of them, or actually three of them, are quite notable because one was Harvard, one was the CDC, and one that was the Justice Department. And what the CDC found out is uh, John Lott's numbers and Gary Kleck's numbers and all of, all the numbers that we hear about two and a half million, three million gun uses per year in defense are true, and that law-abiding gun owners are very good people. They don't break the law. They they, they don't snap because they're carrying the evil gun. Uh, Police. Uh, the, we had to police one survey where they did fifteen thousand police officers across the country, and uh, the lowest percentage of police that were talking about they preferred having Americans armed with guns was in the eighty percentile. Uh, they don't believe more gun control is going to stop crime or do anything. Uh, then, of course, we had uh, the Pew Research Center, and uh, I think I've named them all now. Crime is down 49%. Gun violence, violent crime across the board is down half of what it was 20 years ago. It's a non-problem. And, but that's not why they're pursuing gun control. So that's why they continue to pursue gun control. It has nothing to do with personal safety or uh, preventing crime because gun control doesn't prevent crime. It, it uh, motivates crime. Well, and, you know, the the absolute irony in almost without failure, every one of these cases from the White House, I'm sorry, from the uh, wire story that I'm reading right here um, that suggests that the uh, potential woman in this uh, event there on Capitol Hill today, 34-year-old Miriam Carey, um, a dental hygienist from Connecticut who, quote, was described by sources as having a history of mental illness, close quote. Certainly in the case of uh, the Naval Shipyard shooter, a history of mental illness. There seems to be a common thread in almost every one of these cases. As eager as Congress is to try to move in and outlaw guns, how come nobody's attempting to try and outlaw mental illness? Well, that's because they would have to treat it differently. Um, uh, 
Dr. Keith Ablow is a psychiatrist that writes for Fox News, and he, he was talking about Aaron Alexis, and Aaron Alexis could have been redeemed. Most of these people could be redeemed, but what happens is they go to a, they go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and they get some over-the-counter, well, over-oral medication like Paxil or Ritalin or Zoloft or one of those psychotropic compounds, and that really doesn't address their issue. The ones that are deeply, I mean, Aaron Alexis, he did everything but uh, write out a letter, big block letter. Somebody needs to help me. He went to the police. He went to the VA. He had shoot. He had two shooting incidents prior to uh, getting cleared to work at the naval shipyard, um, and and still nobody did anything. He, and, I, and ironically, nobody looking at any of the psychiatrists involved in this and saying, gee, we need to do an investigation into potential malpractice here because of the failure of the mental health professionals to aggressively respond or react to the obvious cry for help. Uh, you know, I don't know if the, these guys fall under the, uh, the heading of medical misadventure, but um, if you want to go after the two biggest killers in the United States, or two, I think the average is two and a half million people die unnaturally per year and the biggest killers are alcohol and tobacco and then medical misadventure which kills about 200,000 people a year and I don't know if these, these poor people that uh, fall through the cracks of the mental health system could be listed under medical misadventure but they, uh, they certainly need to they need to take a very serious look at the way they're treating these people. One of the states that, that ironically has um, they come across fairly unscathed in terms of this kind of widespread bloodshed in uh, in recent years and yet has taken some of the hardest line against gun control is uh, the state of California. Um, yeah. There's now an attempt to try, and, and, and I guess at the end of the day, you'll have to help us understand this, Bill. Uh, it, it seems as if it's now gotten down to an attempt to try and outlaw hunting rifles. Well, what they want to do is they want to outlaw all semi-automatic rifles that have a detachable box magazine, which abandons all pretense beyond the assault weapon ban. Now, you, you got to understand, first of all, assault weapon, the term assault weapon is a term that was coined by the uh, Violence Policy Center, which is a rabid anti-gun group. And they turned that back in 1988 as, as a way to uh, cause an emotional reaction to the description, assault weapon. Uh, not a target pistol, not a sporting rifle. Uh, the, the same rifles, by the way, are referred to by the Department of Homeland Security as personal defense weapons. But um, in the hands of, of a civilian, it becomes a, a, an assault weapon. And uh, now they've abandoned all pretense, and they're going just about everything that launches a bullet. Well, the Remington that was used in the naval shipyard shootings, uh, what I understand to be a simple pump-action shotgun, does that suddenly come under the category of an assault weapon? Uh, well, they <laughs> one state had a buyback not too since the DC shooting, and uh, one of the buybacks somebody bought uh, turned in a pump shotgun with an extendable stock, and that was the that they uh, claimed they had collected an assault shotgun. Um, one one characteristic that uh, all weapons and you know shotguns arguably are in Aurora. James Holmes killed twelve people. The first weapon he turned on the moviegoers was a Remington 870 shotgun. And uh, my theory, he probably killed eight people with the shotgun before he went to the center fire rifle. Because a shotgun up close is never safe. It, it is much more dangerous. Uh, at 50 yards, a, a shotgun with the right kind of ammo can take out a car. What this is, 
is, is simply this. With, with uh, the so-called assault weapons, the military lookalikes that have the same uh, semi-automatic capability as a true assault rifle does when it's in semi-automatic, if they ban those, first of all, it's not going to have any impact on crime because more people get killed with hands and feet every year than they do with any sort of long rifle. They know that, so they ban those, or they, they heavily restrict those, and that has no impact on crime, and crime continues on. So then they come back, and I think what you've got in California is you have this happening now. They come back when that first go-round, that first restrictive go-round doesn't work, and they come back and say, well, we didn't ban enough. And they keep on banning and banning until one day you've got a single-shot rifle that, uh, you know, and, and still, you know, that weapon is lethal. I, they, they, what, what? Senator Leland Yee and a lot of the politicians in California want is a fairy tale land. It's a land that does not exist. There is no gun-free utopia. That genie is out of the bottle. The criminals are not going to pay attention to it. Well, and we know clearly from the battles over these kinds of issues in times past, the last time we had um, California Senator Dianne Feinstein uh, jump on this bandwagon with both feet and insisting that we needed to uh, permanently ban assault weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and how terrible they were and that people should not be carrying guns. And then we find out, oops, she's got a concealed weapons permit. I don't have a problem with her as a senator carrying, but when there is sort of the elitist attitude that certain people get to have guns and others don't, you know, it comes down to one basic thing, that as we see this continued push, it's not addressing the real problem here, number one. And number two, you're going to wind up with two groups of people having weapons, Uh, the police force, which is heading more toward a meritalistic style um, you know, almost paramilitary troopers any more than police these days with the way they're being armed and the criminals. And meanwhile, the law-abiding citizens will simply get caught in the middle, no access to weapons whatsoever, which is kind of seemingly where things are headed if they get their way. Check out LockAndLoadRadio.com. That's LockAndLoadRadio.com, a part of Gun Owners of America. And there is Bill Brady on this edition of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.